Friends, thank you for bearing with us. It's just always, uh, by the way, my name's Steve Carr. I'm an elder here. I do go to church here occasionally. Right when we set up, one of the things about having a new teaching minister uh, was like, okay, I can be gone because I work with churches on a day-to-day, or well, really day-to-day, but sometimes it's helpful to be there. So I've been out preaching the last three weeks, and I went from Cleveland to Columbus to North Cincinnati, and uh, so I show up every once in a while. But I set that up because I'm like, hey, it's okay. There'll, there'll be other people here to take care of it. And it's great to see that the church didn't fall apart while I was gone. Did it? Okay. But then I show up and then the, comp- <laughs> the, the, the computer just died. So I went and got mine. You know, we got it all set up and then it wouldn't play. So I needed a HDMI cord. Ran down the street. Like literally ran. And then my neighbor saw me and he's just like, Steve, you need a ride. I was like, yes, I do. So drove me back up. I hitchhiked. We made it. That's behind the curtain, right? That's, that's what we see. But uh, like I said, we're at a point of uh, transition as a church, so thank you all for being here. If you're newer to us, this isn't normal, but we never know what normal actually is. And, uh, but the one thing that it always comes back to is Christ and us immersing ourselves in His Word and then seeing how that's applicable to our lives. So, Thanks for journeying with us, and we'll make this useful today. I wanted actually to step back in. Some point months ago, David started a series called Jesus BC. So this was something in the vein of that that happens like as we broke things up. But um, yeah, so hope you'll do this. This is like, you know, this is not a uh, series that we're going through per se, but we'll be in the book of Nehemiah today. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament We'll get a page number there, but if you're really good Bible scholars, find your way there, and we'll get that later. Um, The parable, the parable, I called this a parable because sometimes when we look at stories that have lessons, I just, you know, it just comes out naturally because I'm the Bible guy, but the, the, the fable of, uh, in, the, in the way that we tell stories to, to learn lessons, right, is, is something that's very important because we are people of stories, and therefore we tell stories with meaning because when they have meaning, then we remember it. So for instance, the, you know, so again, it's not the parable, but the fable of the tortoise and the hare. You remember that one? Fast bunny, slow turtle. Somehow in the animal kingdom, they decide to have a race. The hare, the rabbit, is so confident that he, in the midst of the race, takes a nap, and the turtle, turtle, the turtle, who completes his journey before the rabbit, is supposed to teach us the lesson that slow and steady wins the race. Or, you know, is it the other one that great talent and sloth always loses the race? I don't know. The one fable that I've always found fascinating is the three little pigs. Are you familiar with this story? It's interesting because I remember it because of the Walt Disney cartoon. Did anybody ever see that one? I thought we could play something, but video out is a weird thing. The, the three little pigs, if you remember the story, there are three little pigs. And then there is a wolf that proceeds to want to attack the pigs. And the pigs had constructed themselves different dwelling places. One of straw, one of sticks, the final one of bricks. And as the wolf decimates the first two houses, all the pigs camp out in the third house and somehow survive the wolf's advancing to huff and puff and blow the house in. Now, this is the interesting thing about that is I'm always like, okay, so, so what is the lesson that we learn from that fable? Like the one lesson that I learned from it is the power of bacon, 
to possess someone so much that they would kill recklessly in order to taste it upon their lips. Like, I don't usually compare world religions, but this is one place where Christianity reigns supreme to Islam and Judaism, the power of bacon. I don't believe, however, that that's the actual fable. And it's funny because then everybody said, well, the fable is, is that you're supposed to, you know, not waste your time. You know, you're supposed to give something your full attention. But I'm like, it's not like the two other pigs built shoddy structures, it's that their building material was wrong, which in essence then gets us to the point that the point of this fable is pick your building materials wisely. And I don't know how much that happens to you in everyday life. Maybe it's that, maybe this is the application to our computer issue right here, and that, you know, Steve Jobs, God rest his soul, is not to be trusted with our with, with our projection? I don't understand. Like, what, I don't know if there's a direct application here, but it is interesting if we look at the power of brick. I don't know if you've thought of the power of brick. Bricks are an interesting material. Actually, it predates the birth of Jesus a few thousand years. So bricks have been around a long time. And today, a good brick is a composite a combination of sand and lime and iron oxide and magnesia and clay, clay baked together at the right temperature to ensure that the brick is a good construction item that you can build buildings. This building in which we are seated right now dates from the 1870s. And to think that all that happens because now this is the power of stone, but there are other comparable buildings in this neighborhood that are built out of this material, and those buildings tend to last. This is why, transition to the book of Nehemiah, it's important for us to look at the power of building and construction. And I really want to try to apply that to us as a church community here today to see what God is doing through us. So we're in the book of Nehemiah. It's an Old Testament book. If you're in the blue Bible, Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and that page number happens to be 343. So in a blue Bible, you can look at page 343. And because I've been gone, if you will allow me, Kendra's going to read for us today, and I missed last week, but I'm going to tell you, if you were, had the opportunity to go to the Walnut Hills Family Fest, that was one of the most spectacular times I've had being in this community as part of our church. And it wasn't just because all of us came together and did something, but it's because Kendra, and I know a lot of other people were deeply involved, Dylan worked his arse off, and there was a lot of people who did a lot that day, but here's the thing, is that Kendra somehow was able to get multiple churches from Walnut Hills together to do something in collaboration. And that is the neighborhood equivalent of the Dead Sea being parted. That, that's, that's awesome. I said the Dead Sea, it's the Red Sea. I'm a Bible scholar. Because the churches were dead, that's, no, I've got nothing. Thank you, Kendra, for doing that. Are we excited about Kendra? We won't applaud, should we applaud Kendra? Let's just... Look at that, boisterous. People are like, half, uh, okay, it was like two weeks ago. It's okay. What's next? We'll see. There's, there's things, people's there's, pantry. There's things, yeah, I can announce stuff after. That's well, we'll announce it or we'll just say there's stuff happening. There's stuff happening. We're going to check your email. We're getting involved. This is great. This is exciting. Okay, should we get back to the lesson? Sure. Building things, you built things, we'll build things. Nehemiah chapter 2, we're going to read verses 17 and 18 to get started. Kendra has the microphone of power. Please bless us with the word. All right. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, 
and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this work. I didn't do a good timeline here, but just to set things up. Okay, Jesus was born in 0 AD, but really he was born in 4 BC. That really messes with you things. The Gregorian calendar got it wrong. So Jesus was born before Jesus was born. Okay, but we're going back in time. Because a thousand years before Jesus was born, King David lived. Maybe you've heard of King David. He's one of the more popular biblical characters. He's the one who combated Goliath, and he was the greatest king over the nation of Israel. His son Solomon reigned. He was supposed to be smart. He was head smart, but not street smart because he couldn't keep it in his shorts. And he did lots of many things that were scandalous. You can read that in the Bible. The beautiful thing about uh, that Solomon is that he learned his lesson. If we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we see lessons learned. But one of the tragic aspects of that is that it started a rift, and his son finally caused the split that made the nation of Israel divide into two. The ten tribes of Israel in the north were known as Israel. The tribes to the south, Judah, and then Benjamin at the side, were known as Judah. And that city, Jerusalem, was the capital of Judah. So again, now we're at decade, or centuries before Jesus was born, specifically 586 B.C., where God was so tired of his people cavorting with the nations, disobeying his law, doing things that he found detestable, that he said, I have to start over I'm going to allow a nation to come in and conquer you. And that was the Babylonians. And I keep using this date, 586 B.C., because we know, know through historic record outside of the Bible and through archaeology that this was an actual event that took place. And actually in 2005, when Kelly and I were in Israel, we were able to see some of the original stones that existed from this structure. The Babylonians surrounded the city of Jerusalem, laid siege to it, captured it, destroyed it, and destroyed the wall and the temple complex. Now, this is something that's interesting for our conversation as well. Why was Jerusalem so important? One reason it was so important, it was a national icon, that Jerusalem was the representative of the people of God. So, for instance, one of the reasons that the attack on New York City in September of 2011 hit many of us to the heart was not just because of what took place, but because of what New York represents is like the epitome of the American spirit. Similarly, this attack in 586 BC would have demoralized the entire nation. But on a more local level, it meant something important too. Because we're here in the city, and many of us here are urban dwellers, and we just find that to be superior. But it wasn't that way in the past. It was cities existing for two reasons specifically. One was provision, and one was for protection. Understand the power of city in the ancient times, because again, we're used to the Kroger, and again, I know a lot of you are transplants, so you're like, yeah, the Kroger, and some of you are from the Cincinnati area, and you're like, the Kroger's because you think there's an S on the end of it, but there's actually no S. It's not like you go to multiple Kroger's. You're like, you're going to a Kroger, a singular Kroger to have your experience. So anyways, you're going to Kroger, and you're like, I'm going to shop. You get all of the items that you want, um, and hopefully, Lord willing, Diet Cherry Coke will still, or Cherry Coke Zero will exist because we're loosing our Coke Zero prayer meeting later this week for anybody, for anyone, for anyone, just me. Fine, drink water. 
So here's the issue. You're so used to be able to getting all these goods and services together. In the ancient times, that did not exist. So even though you had people who were more agri- uh, who were agrarian, who, who farmed, they wanted to live near cities because that gave them a place to be able to trade and have commerce. So it was for the provision that they wanted to live in cities so that they would either create their wares or, 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 or farm and then they could trade and they could have everything that they needed. People liked cities for what it provided. Also then, cities had walls in ancient times and the walls of the city were incredibly important. They would open at the morning and people would be able to move freely and then at night they would come into the walls of the city and the gates would be closed to add safety for the people of God, for provision and protection. So recognize this. When the Babylonians come in in 586 and destroy the city, they take down the walls and as the walls fall, the very essence of the city is dead. And the city exists, but it provides no inherent value for the people. So the people that are hanging around there are are just doing so out of this love and desire for their homeland and where they were at. Enter Nehemiah the man in this book. If you go back and read chapter 1, Nehemiah was one of the people that were hauled off to Babylon, and actually not Nehemiah specifically. He wasn't even born when this happened. But decades later, you know, after Nehemiah, the son of families who experienced this, was in the presence of the king because that's where God put him, and he heard that the walls were still down, knocked over. Decades later, Nehemiah is cut to the heart. And what he says is, look, king, let me go back and let me rebuild the walls. And I apologize that I didn't take the time to go and create a better view of what, uh, of what this looked like. But understand is that the wall, it was not a massive, massive city. Again, in 2005, Kelly and I were able to walk around the enlarged wall of the state of Jerusalem with just in an hour. So it's not like it was a huge complex. It's just that nobody had ever come in and said, we need to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah goes to the king and says, let me go back to my people and build it. And the king said, go with my blessing. Nehemiah shows up on the scene and then think about the nature of the people then. They had never seen themselves a time where the walls existed. There was just the elderly who would have remembered what the walls of Jerusalem looked like. And Nehemiah went to the people and said, look, folk, it's time for us to get together. These walls have lain ruined too long. Let's make this a city again. Let's make this an important center for you and for I and for our children and the generations to come. And the people said, this is good stuff. Let's get involved in it. So the first lesson I think you and I need to to really understand when it comes to what Nehemiah did and what we do is that we ought to grasp the vision. Friends, I'm not going your basic three-pointer. I'm going four-pointers, so stick with me. This one, grasp the vision. I think this is important for us to do. Think about it. How many times have you been in a work situation where you're maybe working on a project and there's just that one person who is on the peripheral and you come into the meeting and they begin to talk and you're like, what planet from which did they receive this email that has caused them to go so tangential that we can't get anything done? Because as we know, when teams are divided, it's maddening, right? So you want people all together on the same page. And friends, that's something that Nehemiah was able to do. He came in with a simple message and said, let's all get together and do something. It's true, by the way, within brick building is that you have to have a vision. Um, I I grew up the son of a construction worker. You can tell by my my pencil-pushing fingers that I no longer do that anymore. But one of the most interesting things I saw was bricklaying. 
And my problem is I'm more hair in the torso and the hair thing is I want to get to the job and just get it done. And bricklaying does not happen fast. It's a meticulous process to where the most important thing bricklaying is string. And they align string together to make sure that the wall will go up straight. And then there are things called pins that hang at the end of that to make sure that not only is the wall straight long ways, but it's straight vertically as well. A lot of planning goes into it. Friends, I think it's biblical. We need to always rely on planning. So again, as a person who loves to shoot from the hip, it's something that works against me sometimes, but it's something that we need to do. Scripture testifies to this in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Where there's no vision, the people perish. What does that mean? If we're all doing our own thing, then we're not working as one. We need to grasp the vision. Okay, now the baby is going to read for us. Are you tagging in? Go ahead and turn that thing on. Are you tagging in? I'm going to tag in. You're going to tag in? Yes. That's a wrestling reference. Brother. A teaser? Wrestling will be included in this next point. Not in this scripture verse, mind you. Nehemiah did not start the WWE. Oh, yeah. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19, please. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is it this that you are doing? They asked. Are you rebelling against the king? So, when we look at the Old Testament, it's important to understand names. And Garrett did just a wonderful job of maneuvering through those because these are names that are not very common to us. But understand this. Very often in the Old Testament, names have a, a significance, something that we need to hone in on. So let's look at the three opposition to the project in reverse order, starting with Geshem. And the word Geshem means hefty. Now, I have known people named both Tank and Truck, right? Now, those were not given names, mind you. Those are names that you earn, right? Like, I've never been nicknamed Tank. Although I feel like it, my stature in girth stuff just does not resonate with that. Like, I'm not a Tank, you know? I'm, I'm a twig or whatever, right? Like... But Geshem's parents named him Hefty. Like, that's a, that, that's, a, that's a manly name, right? Like, you have high expectations for Hefty. If you're going to name that kid Hefty, you're going to be like, look, you're going to be a force. And for the people of God trying to do this, when Hefty comes and says, I'm against you, you might be in a posture of quaking because nobody wants to go up against Hefty, right? That's probably a name one has to earn. Now let's go to this name Tobiah, because Tobiah is an interesting name because just the teaser here is if you get this in the Old Testament, Nehemiah, um, Isaiah, anytime when the ah is at the end of the name, that is the contraction for the name Yahweh, which is one of the names of God. So they have God in their name, and actually Tobiah's name means God is good. Now here's your Christianese exercise for the day. In a church setting, if I say God is good, the people are supposed to respond with all the time. And then I, as the leader, say all the time, and you respond with, see, some of you are like, what is going on there? 
Like it's this call-response thing, but it's supposed to be this, this inspiration piece, like God is good all the time, all the time God is good, because it's a mantra that we repeat, because when times get bad, I need to remember that God is good. Here's what's fascinating. Where is Tobiah lined up? Tobiah is lined up on the opposition. He is working against the people of God. That's difficult for you and I to understand, and I want to come back to Tobiah, but we've got to land on Sanbalat, which is not you know, it, it, you have never heard of somebody named Sambalot, right? You might be like, I didn't even know this guy's name was in the Bible. Maybe like a Geshem, a Tobiah, you would have bought it. But Sambalot, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense because Sambalot translated is the word sin. So can you imagine that? I go to, you know, not so much anymore, but in my time as a minister, I would go to hospitals when the baby was born. Like the weirdest part would be is when I'd show up and the family wasn't there, and I beat the family there, right? And a couple of times, people have been like, here's our baby, do you want to hold it? It's like, do, do not bring that evil on me. Not the idea that the child is evil, but you do not hold, you know, you let the grandparents or somebody hold that baby first. Like, just Steve, just it's not good for business, right? So I keep my distance. But the most interesting thing is that now as people come to hide their names, I walk in and I just say, hey, what's happening? What's the baby's name? And in all of my years of doing ministry, nobody has said, his name is Sin. And there's probably a purpose behind that, right? Especially in this day and age where people pain over the names that we give things or your critters at home, or even your automobile, right? Like, you pain over that. You want that name to be something of significance, hefty, right? You don't want to be like, his name is Sin, and we're hoping he grows up to live into his name. Doesn't work like that, right? Now, as we look at the scripture right here, if we take Tobiah out of the equation, we could be like, we can see how these two are lined up against what the Lord God is doing, right? Sin and hefty and toughness, like that seems to be the enemy of what God is doing. But here we have God is good right in the midst of that. Friends, that's paradigm blowing. What is the significance of that? I think it's important that we need to not just grasp the vision, but know the obstacles. And I think this text speaks to my verbiage right here. Think about this. Usually we, and I I think this is especially true of Christians, like to label things as our enemy. Especially we people of faith who subscribe to this idea that God is good all the time. And because of his goodness, there's the opposite of the goodness, and that is evil, and evil is the enemy. I actually had a dear family member of mine recently declare that cancer is evil. And I really just had to stop. I'm like, yeah, cancer is not good, mind you. But when we talk about it, is it truly evil? And you're just like, what kind of church theological work is this? I've been out of the pulpit too much, right? I'm going to launch this to you. As bad as cancer is, sometimes I've seen God use cancer in the life of an individual to change their life like nothing else ever would have. Now you may be like, well, that's God using evil. Well, God doesn't use evil, right? Evil is the antithesis of God. I'm not trying to come, really, this is a whole treatise paper, right, to talk about this. Here is the issue that we have. We are so quick to claim that something is the enemy that what we do is we, we, we do not bring into focus the truth of the situation. 
which is our role in this in our lives. Because to be honest with you, however bad I've had experiences with people doing things to me or saying things about me, really the worst individual that I've ever had to wrestle with is me. I'm the enemy more so than any other human being is the enemy. Sometimes we have conflicts with individuals, but does that mean that they're evil? This is one of the things, and this reads into the text a little, but we can actually suppose here. Did you see within verse 19, one of the things that the men were talking about is, why are they rebelling against the king here? Which is interesting because they think by building the wall, they're rebelling against the king, when in actuality, they didn't know that hundreds of miles away, the king said, go with my blessing. So maybe initially their fear is misplaced. It's ignorance because they're afraid that if they violate the king, the king's going to come down and hurt the people even more. Now we're going to see that that's not entirely true, but maybe, like, because they changed their perspective, but maybe in this instance right here, they are just confused and ignorant. Don't be so quick to label something the enemy. We were at the FC game last night, soccer game. Was anybody else there? Anybody watching on TV? One of the worst case of officiating I've ever seen. To the extent that, like, people were so murderously angry, Kelly, in that, it was funny because, you know, you can imagine what I was like. I was just, like, so angry. And I'm like, when Kelly gets angry, then you know that somebody has done something evil. But what's hilarious is that through the connection point, there's this one ref that I've seen a lot there, and I was on Facebook one day, and a good friend of mine is friends with a referee that has actually <laughs> officiated some Cincinnati games. So I'm just kind of like, you know, I, I got to calm down because this person is a person with a family. You know, we all have bad days in our job. I don't want to kill them for doing that. Why do I do that? I was telling Kalen in the midst of this last night, I was like, you know what, Kalen, really all sports is professional wrestling. Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan. I don't know if you've ever understood wrestling. We should talk about it sometime. But there's always two roles in wrestling. Kalen, what are the two roles? The face and the heel. Those are the two roles. Because you're supposed to cheer for the face, Hulk Hogan, and you're supposed to root against the heel. Anyone? Ric Flair, I just wanted, I just needed that. Woo! Thank you. In wrestling, it's simple, and this is one of the reasons that it's still so popular today. Because when we have good and evil, and it's very clear, it's there. Now, one of the interesting things in wrestling, and somebody's like, this is the first diatribe I've done on wrestling in a while, but stick with me. What's interesting now is that to keep people interested, there are things called tweeners, which sit in the middle, and you're like, I can't tell if he's good or bad or evil. And a tweener then causes just total disarray into it because you're always trying to think, what's their motivation? Friend, I'm going to offer you that the tweener is more like the world than anything else because many of us are in between. Some days, I am a great man of God. Other days, I am the spawn of Satan. And my role, praise the Lord, is not always predetermined, right? That's the importance of what Christ does in our life. See, through Jesus, in the eyes of God, no matter how healed we are, we're always the faith. Okay? And let me put this in non-wrestling terms for us. Even in our position as the enemy of God, even when we're Sanbalat, God sees Tobiah. 
So what we need to do is let's not label things so quickly as enemies, but let's label them as they truly are. They're obstacles. Sometimes we need to work through the obstacles. Does not Jesus tell us to do this in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, okay? Because when you wrap yourself into the words of Christ like that, it changes who you are, right? Okay, Garrett, I'm not going to even do this, so hold, hold out for a minute. Stand behind the rings. If you have your Bible, look through Nehemiah chapter 3. It's such an interesting, and you're going to see why we don't read to it. Read through it right now. This is the thing, as much as a Bible guy as I am, I'm always leery to tell somebody like, oh yeah, just read the Bible. Like, that'll solve everything. Because by my luck, they'll end up in Nehemiah chapter 3. They'll be like, I'm just going to read some random chapter. And they end up 3, and there's a bunch of these names that they don't understand, places that they have no thing, and all these people are doing stuff that nobody cares about, right? So I don't tell people to just go read the Bible carte blanche, because they'll end up here and they'll be like, this just sounds crazy, and then they'll give it up altogether. So, but for us, understanding what's happening right now, chapter 3 is powerful, because in chapter 3, we see all these people. Remember that Nehemiah said, yeah, here's the vision, the people grasped it, they knew that there was obstacles, but what do they do in chapter 3? They get to work. They start to rebuild the walls in the gates of Jerusalem. A few things about this to point out. Number one, as you read through it, not everybody were construction experts. Like it's something that we see the priests join in and start to build. Friends, again, as much as I come from a construction family, you don't want to put me in charge of building your house. It is not my nature of expertise. And yet at this point, Nehemiah says, hey, everybody in We'll get you the basics. You do the wall, the gate. It works out well. So number one, everybody's in. Number two, there's certain town names in here. You like see the people of Gibeah and the people of, ah, it's that name that starts with a Z. And I'm not going to find it as I'm looking for it. I don't know why I try to find this. Zenoa, I did find it in verse 13. These weren't in Jerusalem. They were neighboring towns. So understand that even people who weren't the direct beneficiaries of the wall collaborated and said, let's do this because we're, we're all together in on this. I love this too. There's 10 different gates that are being repaired. Some of them are more stately, named as the Eastern Gate. And if you know anything about biblical uh, uh, prophecy, the Eastern Gate is supposed to be the gate through which the Messiah enters. That's what Jesus entered in during his triumphal entry. It's where the Jews believe so firmly that the Messiah will come back there. On the hillside surrounding the Eastern Gate is their tombs because they want to be the first to wake up from the dead when the Messiah comes through the gate. Like the Eastern Gate is like the powerful, prominent gate. And then here we have, in verse 14, the dung gate. And there's not any really deep spiritual meaning behind the dung gate, friends. It's where they kept the dung. So think about this. Some people had the best jobs. Like, I'm working on the east gate here. It's wonderful. You know, top button buttoned on this thing. Like, it's, it's prominent. And then the people are like, yeah, I'm by, I'm by the dung gate. Like, it really sucks. It's really windy, too, so the smell. I just come home smelling like the dung. This is what I love, though, is that we don't see this, like, parenthetical conversation. Everybody teamed together and did their job. Everybody did their role. That's why I think the thing that we need to remember is that we need to move in unison. To move, to work, to live, to... to intertwine our efforts together. 
See, this is one of the key aspects of Christianity that we, we, we talk about a lot here, and maybe, you know, maybe that's just something that I like to hit upon, but I think it's important for us because whenever I think about my spirituality, I tend to think of it in individualistic terms. But friends, as much as you might have heard of the concept of a personal relationship with Jesus, it's not found in the scriptures anywhere. Not in the Greek, not in the Hebrew. Nobody talks about in the Bible the personal relationship of Jesus. That doesn't mean that you need to move to Christ individualistically, but more importantly, it's that we move together. As a, as a fellowship, as a group of believers, we come together and live our life together intertwined so that your burden is not your burden alone, so that the task before you isn't just to be accomplished in your life, but to come together. I, I feel like this is best exemplified um, in, in, in a group of people with whom I've had some experiences lately. I, I, I've had to travel throughout the state, and I ended up in Amish country. I, I, have you all ever been to Amish country in Ohio? driving toward Millersburg, Ohio. And I remember when I came in, I called Kelly when I first said, I was like, Kelly, there's a horse and buggy right here. And I was like, I'm going to take some video of it, right? Like nonchalantly, because they don't like when you take their pictures. Like everybody know that about the Amish? I don't know if it's because they're ghosts or not. I don't know how that works. So I took one video. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And then there's another horse and buggy. I'm like, ooh, so I'm taking a little video of that one. And then there's another and another. And by the time I'm 20 minutes late in my appointment because I can't, like, burn past horse and buggies safely, I'm, like, angry at the Amish. I wish you could join me in that anger. What's interesting, too, is I don't understand a lot about the Amish culture because I saw a lot of, like, soccer moms and minivans driving around, like, minivans full of Amish guys. Because that's like legit. Like even though they're like, no, we can't do it ourselves. We'll let this lady in, in her Dodge Caravan drive us around in that. I don't get that. And then no joke when I pull up into the town and I see these Amish dudes on their iPhones. I'm like, it's like, I don't know how this works out. But the one thing I do know is them Amish man, they can build a mean barn. Right? I saw a video on the YouTubes last week. It's like the Amish... Like, they built, like, an entire barn, and just in a day. And you look at this, and as much as it's just, like, it's like ants descending on a sugar cube, but instead of the sugar cube being eaten up, it's like ants, like, regurgitating a sugar cube, like a bigger one. I don't know how that works. My metaphors are slipping right here. But it's the point that these dudes, these, these, these guys come together, and these ladies, too, because there's a few in this picture, because they're building stuff, too, raising barns. They get the job done, Right? It, 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 barns get built when people come together. I'm telling you is that there's something when the people of God come together that is just fantastic. Again, we see the, Paul talking but for this, but what Christ loves does for us is it makes us cognizant of the fact that even though Jesus died his death, that death was a communal death, that it impacts the entire the entire face of the earth for generations, right? For every human who's ever lived. So it's, a, it's, it's something that we need to recognize, all right? It's all about us coming together in unison. Garrett, will you read verses 1 through 5 of Nehemiah 4, please? When Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of the associates, the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life? 
keeps of rubble burned as they are. Tobiah the at his side said, what, are they, what they are building, even if a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So this is, this is part looking at the text, but partially preaching right here. But I think there's this lesson that we can extrapolate from what we read right here. And it's that when the people of God come together to do things, there will always be opposition. Because when people do things together, it elicits jealousy. I mean, that's our FOMO, right? Our fear of missing out. When other people are doing something, you're like, why wasn't I invited to that group? In reality, you didn't even want to go. But your jealousy is enraged with the idea that you're not there with them at that point. And similarly, when God's people come together and they're starting to rebuild the walls, you know, our, our, our hefty, God is good, and sin guys come together and they're just like, what are these people doing? And, and, and they're speaking out against this. And, 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 you know, they're going around and they're probably, you know, pontificating in really loud, obnoxious voices as they're building. They're like, you know, they're, they're questioning the timeline. Like, do they really think they can do this? How are they going to get this done? My favorite is, like, you know, th- then they're like, you know, if we put a fox on that wall, like, that's the test for everything, Right? Like, the universal test is get yourself a fox. Because we know fox, they're like nimble critters, right? You know, like, so a fox, like, it, it barely touches the ground. Like, get a fox and put it on it. If it falls over, it sucks. One could even say that the wall was not fox-worthy, Jeff. Yeah, see what, see what I did there? See what I did there? A little country, you know, you might be a redneck. Yeah. Just want to going to pause to let that hang for a moment. End scene. So this is, this is what we see here. I don't know about you, but when obstacles stand in my way, I get angry. Like, you, you, and again, I'm, since Kaylin's staring at me, I just want to use this anecdotally, is that we've been doing a lot of soccer training right now because she's working on it, and it's the thing I find out, right? Like, eventually she just gets angry at me because she's tired of me barking orders at her, and then she just goes, ah, you know, and like, you give your best effort, and I'm like, it's great. It's like the Hulk, right? So you're just poking him with a stick because in anger, it's like, we, 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 we climb mountains for sheer will, what does Nehemiah do as the leader of this project? What does Nehemiah do when the opposition is just getting so loud he can hear it in his ears? Does he just go medieval on them? No. He, verses 4 and 5, he says, hey God, help me out here. He turns to prayer. There's a certain level of empowerment that we like to put in the people today, right? Like, I read all, I, I, I'm telling you, I still read the prevailing business books where it's like, you need to believe in you, you need a personal brand, you need to do this. And as much as I'm like, okay, there's this aspect that God releases us to be confident in ourselves and our abilities, ultimately, everything we are, all that we embody must be a reliance on God that covers everything, So as much as you've been blessed with individual vision and abilities, with with relationships, as much as that's to you, understand that most importantly is your reliance on God to be able to see you through. 
So Nehemiah shows that he is willing to say, look, in the midst of this, this is God's project. I am just an instrument to be used by him. Let's all get this done together. And the one thing that we know is the book, spoiler alert, ends out here. We're not going to go through the entire book of Nehemiah, but recognize that the opposition ultimately fails. God's people return uh, into the city with a completed wall and ultimately they're penitent and they pray to God and say, may we never repeat the sins of our ancestors because he understands the bigger picture. Now, the bigger picture for you and I, what does this old book mean to our lives? Because again, I've, I'm telling you, I kicked it in the can, right? I gave you four points. You know, you can write that down in your Bible and just, you know, do something this week with that. But let's just get to brass tacks. What does that mean for the we, right? What, what does this mean for us? Um, want to see what the next slide is here? Yeah. Nehemiah chapter 2. He relies on God. This is where I wanted to land at. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You're the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part on it. Paul's metaphor here, I've always felt that's a weird metaphor, right? Because bodies, you know, it's all cool, you know, until, you know, we get into talking about people's bodies. I don't know. I just, it's a little awkward. But let's just deal with it on the surface. What Paul is saying is that our faith is not ours in singularity and involves how it intertwines with the rest of us. And I'm going to tell you, one of the reasons I'm glad to be here after being gone for three weeks is I've missed y'all. I miss this. I miss being part of a community. It is sure fun when I get to go see other churches and see how they interact and move, but there's always this longing. It's like, I can walk into the, a church and stand on the stage and say whatever I want to, and I usually do because I'm like, I tell them, it's like, you don't have to ask me back. Like, I don't have to come back here. It's like, that's what's great. I don't usually stand here with that same posture because I'm like, okay, we have a relationship. It's an ongoing relationship. It's what it means for me to be my part of our community, for you to bring your part into it. And understand is that that's what's critical about our lives as they work and move together, is that as we connect, we're one body. Here's the thing. Can you be part of that one body, and can you find contentment in what God's calling you to do? This is, this is what's difficult in this time of transition for us as a church, but I find it beautiful too, because it's like, okay, now we've got to go and we've got to reorganize things. Like you just want, you want your life to be on autopilot, right? You want to be able to clock in, do your thing, check out, move on. But friends, life is never that clean. As much as we want things to remain the same, things are always changing, and that's for the betterment. And it's how we adjust to that. I think we adjust by saying, what is my role and what can I do best? It's been a humbling thing for me, right? I love standing here and preaching. You know, seriously, I have a good time with this. But what I need to realize, though, is that as much as I enjoy this in the here and now, that the church might need my role better placed than other aspects of that. And I need to realize if this isn't my job to be the mouth, right, to be the voice of the body of Christ, but maybe just to be the elbow that somebody leans on or something, then uh, I'm signing up, Right? Because that's what it means. Let me ask you, what does it mean for you? Does it mean just like, okay, I'm clocking in on Sunday? Or does it mean that I need to figure out what role I fit in this? Because I'll tell you this, we need you, we need all of us interacting and moving to make it happen. We need to be the body of Christ. That's what it means to build something robust. Now, this is what I really like, and I don't have the slide for this, but if you look, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'm not gonna make you turn there, but some interesting diatribe by Paul. 
I'm sorry, I said 14. I meant 12. Because what Paul does here is he says, look, the church in Corinth had spiritual gifts issues. Everybody was like, we want the most important gift. And Paul said, some of you are not the most important people. You want to be the person preaching. Maybe you're the person who needs to be taking out the trash. That's fine. But this is what I love. Immediately after this, and I don't know if you've ever seen the connection, go to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. You know what that is? 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. And at the end of chapter 12, when Paul is saying, of all these gifts that you can use, let me show you the most excellent gift. And then he says, if I speak in the tongues of men, of angels, but don't have love, then I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just like, you know, the goof who's in band who picks up the cymbals and plays them really loud because I think I'm making music and I take no part in that. That's what happens when I serve without love. And love's the key. And this is my, you know, hippie component of this. Did I wake up your child with my incessant clapping? Then the spirit is on that child. But can I do the dance? You know what happens in before? Okay, so, so the culmination is the body of Christ. What is, what is the body of Christ? How is that best expressed? Through love, right? When I bring love to the table, I'm a great community member. Do you know what precedes that, though, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Paul says, you know what that starts is it's in our relationship with Christ and how we view that through, verse 17, the Lord's Supper. There's an inextricable link between communion and me being part of the body of Christ and the love that I show because the greatest sacrifice of love ever made was Jesus on the cross, right? So communion is the catalyst by which we come together. And I would say this a lot, but it's important for the etymology, for us to see the etymology, to see what that means. What is commune? It's derived from the words community, commune, together, people coming together. That's what this is. Not what Christ just did for me, but what he did for the we. So as we do all the time, as we come together as the people of Christ, we have a time of communion. A time where we reflect on the cross and what that means to all of us. And you know what? Um, I, I hate to be this guy, but we're not going to pass around the trays. We're going to do it differently today. I'm going to have it up here, and you're going to have to come to take communion. Because what I love about this is it's the we getting up and coming together. And yeah, you might be like, there's a line, this is awkward. No, it's not. Because that's what it means to live in family and community, right? That's what Jesus does. We come to him and we live life together. So I'm going to pray. And then we, friends, are going to commune. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these huge goals that you put before us. Maybe it's a wall that is destroyed and in ruin, or maybe it's just something to the effect of where do I fit in with this community? You just put these things in front of us, and Father, you enable humans to come together and do some just fantastic works. But I'd ask that you work in us to see our place in your kingdom. To see, Father, that this is not an individualistic sport, that it's a team sport. 
that, Father, you believed so deeply in this that you left heaven, that you walked among your creation, that you submitted to its wickedness and death, but that you defeated death and rose from the dead. And for all this, we praise you. And we thank you for this time of communion. And as we take the bread and the cup, we remember you, we remember your sacrifice, you remember, we remember what you did for us. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.